Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants, and also the ETH guy, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the digital asset space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. A uh, quick reminder that you can catch this podcast and other deep explorations of blockchain trends on Cointelegraph magazine at www.cointelegraph.com slash magazine. Uh, and quick disclaimer, nothing here is an investment advice. You can read the show notes for our full disclaimers. Uh, I'm very excited to be joined by Anthony Sassano, who doesn't currently have a title. So we're going with the ETH guy down under. So Anthony, the ETH guy down under, it is great to have you on. Hey, Josh, thanks for having me on today. And I think that's a that's a pretty descriptive and great title. I'm not sure there's many uh, Ethereum people in in Australia. So yeah, that, that describes me quite well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you are, I mean, you are, I mean, in my mind, you're just the ETH guy. You're like that ETH guy from Twitter, but I guess a more descriptive version is the ETH, the ETH guy down under. Mm-hmm. And so let's, let's, let's go right into it. So, so Anthony, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you discovered crypto? And actually, one, one other qualifying thing, I'm very interested in, in finding out what's the first crypto that you discovered as well. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, I, I should start there. The first one I discovered was actually Bitcoin back in 2013. Uh, so it was, a, it was a while ago now. Um, but I basically, I think I heard about it because of the Silk Road stuff that was going on at the time. Um, there was a lot of news about that, a lot of uh, kind of coverage on the media about that. So kind of dived into Bitcoin back then in 2013. Um, I was, I, I think I, I would say I was pretty obsessed with it, but I was quite young. So I guess like I was in it for the money. Uh, I didn't have much money. So I was like, oh, this is going to make me so much money. And I didn't really kind of stick around once the market turned sour in 2014. So I kind of exited the ecosystem and ignored it until early 2017 when I discovered Ethereum. A friend told me about it and said, hey, I, you were into Bitcoin back in the day. There's this Ethereum thing and you can build like apps on it. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, this sounds cool. Um, and I have a tech background, not a finance background. So that's why that kind of like spoke to me more than I guess like Bitcoin did originally. So yeah, and I, I, I kind of rode the wave up in 2017, um, you know, obviously the bubble and everything like that. And then once the market came crashing down again, I was like, okay, well, I made the mistake last time of exiting just because the market crashed. Like, let's stick around this time and see where this kind of industry takes me. And I was still working a non-crypto job. Um, I was uh, working in cybersecurity for a telecommunications company. Um, so completely different to to crypto. Um, but but basically, I stuck around in 2018, 2019, like the depths of the bear market, and just tried to build a name for myself uh, through you know using Twitter and and other kind of venues, trying to become as you said like the ETH guy uh, and trying to become like well known within the Ethereum ecosystem. And obviously, I think I've achieved that at this point. Uh, and you know, I, I think these days I'm I'm just like uh, trying to give back as much as I can, where whether that's kind of helping teams. Uh, you know, early stage teams or, or kind of like educating. I do a lot of educating through through um, various means. So yeah, that's kind of like the, the brief overview of my journey. I did, actually, I should mention, I did join a crypto company eventually in mid-2019 called SET. Uh, they build kind of asset management products uh, and I left their uh, full-time work there in January of this year, but I still advise the company uh, and advise the team there. And so what does your day-to-day look like now? Yeah, so day to day for me the, uh, these days really is I run um, a new daily newsletter and daily YouTube video uh, called the Daily Gway, which is basically just a way to keep up with the Ethereum ecosystem. So the newsletter consists of commentary on like the biggest thing that happened during 
you know, the, the last 24 hours. Um, that goes out every weekday. And the YouTube video is about half an hour kind of uh, recap every weekday of um, what happened in the kind of crypto ecosystem slash Ethereum ecosystem, just keeping people up to date. Uh, and there's a bunch of other things that I do. Like I do bi uh, biweekly kind of AMAs through my Discord uh, channel. Um, I do like uh, a data analysis as well, daily analysis videos, like on-chain data and things like that. Um, and then outside of that, I do um, another podcast weekly with uh, my co-founder of EthHub, Eric. And we also do a weekly uh, newsletter, Ethereum news, all, all Ethereum based, of course. Uh, and I also advise a bunch of different companies. Uh, some people may have heard of them like uh, Polygon, uh, which is very popular within the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, uh, I, as I said, I advise Set, uh, another two companies called Mstable and Block Native. And I do a lot of seed stage investing these days as well. So bit bit of an all-rounder. But as I said, I'm kind of in the in the position now where I'm trying to give back as the much ETH as guy. possible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ETH guy. The ETH guy trying to give back to the Ethereum ecosystem. That's that's it. <laughs> and so so what are some of the uh, exciting early stage startups that you've uh, made seed investments in recently? Yeah, yeah. So I, there's, there's actually a, a lot of them. Some of them aren't public. Some of them uh, are, are public. I think like my first seed stage investment was actually something called uh, Mstable and I'm an, I'm an advisor to them. That was uh, a long time ago now. I think I made that in January of 2019. It's like the depths of the bear market. So I think the funding space generally is pretty different these days where money's so kind of like abundant and capital so abundant that these teams are having no trouble kind of getting funding. But it was funny in 2019, it was very, very different. Teams were having to give up like massive, massive parts of like equity and, and tokens or whatever to just get some funding across. But in terms of, I guess, like the most exciting, uh, I'm really excited about Zappa. So I'm a seed investor in Zappa, which is like a DeFi dashboard that um, is, is basically built for, I mean, I wouldn't say it's built for power users, it's built for everyone, but it lets, you know, the, kind of like power users really manage their DeFi kind of um, uh, DeFi activities because it lets you kind of put all your addresses into one dashboard and monitor everything that you're doing, which I think is very powerful because you, it's very easy to lose track of this stuff. So I think that would be um, one of my favorites. Uh, there's a few others uh, uh, others here. I think a lot of them are actually not public yet, so I can't really talk about those. But uh, I, I think like outside of that, uh, what I've been focusing a lot on in the Ethereum space is scaling in general. Um, and I haven't made a seed investment in Polygon, but I'm an advisor to them. Um, and that's kind of like uh, really exciting for me because it's been great to see Polygon kind of gain traction there. Um, and they're building like a bunch of other solutions to scale Ethereum as well. So yeah, I would say those are, those are kind of like uh, the ones that I'm really excited about right now. So I'm very excited to go into scaling. And that's obviously the the biggest topic of discussion around Ethereum. And, you know, I'm sure you have this discussion about 74 times a day, but I'm excited to hear uh, your perspective because it's not something I have a discussion around. But before we even get into that, you know, you lived through the the bear market of 2019 and 2020, but you always kind of stood steadfast as Ethereum being that asset that 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 you know was interesting to you. So why Ethereum and and why you know over time have you continued to maintain that support? Yeah, so that's a big question. But I think if we're looking at just the asset itself, and and maybe don't take the the, the kind of like network as as kind of like the main part here. The, the funny thing with ETH as an asset, it's had an interesting history where originally it was proposed as this fuel to power the network, right? Like everyone knows you have to pay gas fees to to use thing, to, to do transactions on the Ethereum network, you know, just like you have to pay fees on Bitcoin to use Bitcoin network. But with Ethereum, uh, you can do, you know, a lot more than you can do on Bitcoin, right? The whole DeFi ecosystem and stuff like that. So ETH was never envisioned as like a store of value asset or like a, a collateral asset or anything that was supposed to have like lots of value. And I think that's where a lot of the, um, I think, 
confusion comes from is that some people still think that ETH is not an economic asset. It's really just just to be used as fuel to power the network. So, you know, if ETH was worth one dollar, then it and then the Ethereum network would work just fine. It's like technically you, that is true, but you miss like everything else that comes along with a valuable ETH. And the reason why I specifically during the bear market, the reason why I kind of um, stuck with ETH and stuck with Ethereum, I think during 2018 it was. Uh, sticking with Ethereum was just like because I saw so much building going on still like some of our fan favorites like MakerDAO was launched in December of 2017 um, Uniswap was launched November of 2018 but they were building it through November uh, and there was a bunch of other things going on during 2018 on the builder side so as the price was falling it was very hard to like not still be involved in the ecosystem because there was so much going on so, and then you come to 2019, and then uh, I think 2019, even though it was a really bad year for ETH's price, it's when ETH's monetary policy and it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like value started to shine. If you kind of look back at something like EIP 1559, which is a very popular Ethereum improvement proposal to essentially, uh, I mean, it comes with a bunch of different features, but the headline feature is that it burns most of the gas fees that are paid in ETH on every transaction. So essentially what people are excited about is that this can make um, ETH deflationary, so even better than a capped supply asset. Uh, so this was actually proposed in April of 2019. So, it, and people may, may think it was just a recent thing because it took two years or over two years to get here. It's still not live. It's, it's, it's tentatively scheduled to go live next month. Um, or in July, uh, but that that was a, a big thing, and also um, ETH two with staking as well as like a value driver to ETH. Uh, really, um, you know, it came into itself during twenty nineteen and twenty twenty. We obviously had staking go live December of twenty twenty um, as part of the the ETH two rollout there. So yeah, it, it, I mean, I, I could go on for a long time about kind of like ETH as an asset and. I think the other kind of things, I, I guess, that came into it was also that it's used within DeFi. So ETH started becoming this trustless collateral that you can use within DeFi to power the entire ecosystem. Uh, and, you know, the, the total value locked or TVL metric started coming into its own and people were were, do it, were, were um, uh, using the benchmark of USD and ETH. So they were like, okay, USD is fine, but like what, what is the ETH locked there? Like how much ETH do we have in this system powering it? What percentage of the supply is it? Uh, and then I think, you know, over time, because of all of these kind of utility utility that ETH, uh, that ETH had, what ended up happening was that more and more people viewed it as an economic asset, as a store of value, as something that they wanted to hold for the long term, and not as something that you would just use to pay gas on the network, because now you needed ETH to, to, to kind of like um, do DeFi things. Now, ETH was like your reserve currency, because you had to pay fees, but you also wanted to do things on the network, and ETH was the most liquid pair for DeFi, and still is the most liquid pair um, for DeFi for trading on things like AMMs. Uh, and, you know, now you want it to stake as well. So you have to have ETH for staking. And when people kind of clued into the narrative of, uh, or not the narrative, like the actual kind of reality of uh, setting in that when ERP-1559 gets implemented, ETH's going to be burned. So it's going to become, you know, def potentially deflationary, which means its scarcity is going up. And people are like, okay, well, I need to, you know, I need to hoard as much of this as possible um, and, and, and kind of like stuff like that. So I think that it was a, it was a bit of a journey to get to, where we are today with where ETH has like a, a pretty, pretty massive market cap. Um, you know, I know, I know the, you know, these days the market is, is not as hot as it was a few weeks ago, but still, I think ETH market cap is over 300 billion, um, which is, you know, I, I think a testament to the fact that ETH's value isn't, 
isn't kind of like I, I guess like if we, if we were to compare BTC and ETH, I think BTC is much more faith based, where you kind of believe in it, um, and you kind of like have have faith in it that it has value. Um, and not to say that Bitcoin doesn't have like its own kind of value properties, but I think that the the key kind of distinction here is that ETH's value came from its utility and and continues to come from its utility within DeFi, within staking, it, it uses gas, things like that. Whereas, uh, and then, and then from that, the belief that ETH has value flows. So it doesn't start from its belief value; it starts from its utility value, and then people kind of start to believe that it's a store of value uh, based on that utility. So, yeah, hopefully that gives a bit of a history and, and kind of like context around why people are stacking ETH these days and so bullish on it. Yeah, and so I, uh, you know, I I totally am with you. But but one of the other things that we're seeing is there are other layer ones that are now emerging that have you know similar types of narratives, right? Where, you know, the underlying asset, you know, so, you know, Solana's, you know, the most notable example just raised 300 million plus dollars this morning. You know, there's DOT, you know, there's Binance Smart Chain. And, you know, I put that in a different bucket because bucket because it's centralized, but, you know, we can, whatever, we can throw it in there. Um, where, where there are similar things, right? There's utility, there's usage, there's, um, you know, there's staking, there's rewards, there's, there's a lot of similar things going on. Uh, but also a lot of these, other layer ones are just cheaper uh, and faster than Ethereum is, and so I, I, you know, I wonder what are your thoughts on these other, you know, layer one blockchains, and and do you foresee a multi-chain future? So this is a this is a fun question to to answer. I think with these other chains that are advertising kind of, I guess, like low fees, you know, fast transactions, you know, more scalable in Ethereum. I think over the long term they lose based on that because uh, I think you know scalability is going to become a commodity where Ethereum can scale. It's just scaling in a different way. It doesn't want to uh, give up its decentralization to scale, so it's building out its layer two ecosystem, and that's taking a bit longer because of the fact that the stuff that's coming out of the layer two space is bleeding edge, like zk rollups. People may have heard of that stuff is magic. Like literally, it was it, it never had a practical implica- uh, application until scaling for ethereum came along or scaling for crypto came along before it was all theoretical uh, crypto that was that was kind of done outside the the crypto ecosystem so that that's one big part of it is that these other chains will sacrifice decentralization to achieve scale and if you do that in my mind you may as well just use uh, aws or like some centralized server if you don't have decentralization then i don't actually see a point to having a blockchain um and that and and that goes into um i guess like answering your first question is like, what makes Ethereum different? And like, what what makes, I guess, like what makes it able to fend off these competitors? And it really is the, the stark difference in in kind of the, uh, the, the kind of uh, decentralization and security properties where essentially with, with these other ones, you don't get that. Like, as you said, BSC is centralized. Um, there's other ones like Solana out there that are more popular, but I don't consider Solana to be, you know, very decentralized because if you actually look at the way they kind of um, validate their network, it's just a handful of um, super nodes essentially doing it. So it is not a democratized thing where everyone can validate the network. It's um, it's definitely kind of uh, reminds me of something like EOS from 2018, where it was a bunch of super nodes running the network. And that's not to say that there's maybe no value there or whatever. But if, if that's what your blockchain is, I just don't see why you would use a blockchain instead of a centralized database or a centralized server, because with a blockchain, you have to basically um, deal with all the, the funky stuff that comes with the blockchain, whereas with a centralized server, you don't. So 
I, I think that generally what Ethereum gives you is that really, really robust decentralization, that really robust security. And you know that there's not going to be, you know, the, the, the chances of Ethereum getting shut down by any kind of like one kind of uh, government or nation state or body is very low compared to some of these other chains. And and, and and that's just like scratching the surface of it, I think. I think from there, you dive into what what makes up these networks. Like, what are the people in these networks? Because at the end of the day, the people are the layer zero, I like to call them. They are the, thi- the, 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 the kind of entities running the network. People are running the full nodes. People are keeping the, the rules in check with their full nodes. If the majority of the people wanted to change the network, they can. I mean, Ethereum upgrades all the time. Uh, you know, if, if the, the EIP-1559 upgrade, it needs to be a hard fork on Ethereum. So for it to go through, so the majority of people want it. So the majority of people will run those nodes. Um, the exchanges will follow that and run their own nodes and list the ETH kind of like one five five nine fork or whatever you want to call it. Um, so from there, you have to have a very strong kind of like social layer and people who actually care about decentralization and security and running their own nodes. And Vitalik wrote a very great blog post on this where he said that if you have a Essentially, if you have a broken social layer, you have no way to fend off attacks. So if you have no one that actually cares about running a full node, cares about decentralization, cares about uh, you know any, anything going wrong with the network or any, any kind of like uh, actor or attacker trying to come after the network, then you have no defense at all because like there's no one that cares at the end of the day so i think these other chains something like bsc as you said um uh, you know as, as we both know and i think a lot of people know it's like an open secret it's centralized if if a government or a nation state really wanted to shut down bsc it could it, it, it very much could i think the same holds true for something like solana i think the same holds true for something like Polkadot. and decentralization isn't just about who run who's running the nodes it's about the people at the end of the day like who is developing the clients i mean there's only one group the the uh, usually the foundations for these kind of um I guess uh, uh blockchains that are building the software maintaining it um telling people to upgrade and and kind of like building out the whole thing um you know Ethereum has the Ethereum Foundation but they're only one kind of like team out of like many that are building clients for Ethereum and they're independent of each other um and, and kind of like uh not just clients but like the research like all the layer two stuff is pretty much happening outside the Ethereum Foundation. Um, DeFi definitely happening outside the so like that all plays into um, d- the decentralization of the um, the Ethereum network, not just at the technical layer but at the social layer. So I think, th- and the funny thing is, like I I know that maybe for some people listening, this might sound um, very very complex and nuanced, and I think this is why people get tripped up and they think that these other networks, just because they're faster and cheaper, they're better than Ethereum. But you really have to look at what the trade-offs are that for them to achieve that. Ethereum is this ultra-decentralized, secure system that basically cannot be shut down, whereas these other chains aren't that. And these other chains can be shut down. They can be censored. Uh, and it's only uh, – it's kind of like um, – there's this turkey fallacy where, you know, the life of a turkey for a thousand days, it thinks it's fine. And then on a thousandth day, it gets its head chopped off because the owner wants to eat the turkey. It's the same with the blockchain. It's like you think it's fine for a thousand days or something, right? But then eventually something happens and you're like, okay, well, how do we defend against this? Well, you have no defense now because you have no social layer, just like the turkey has no defense against getting its head chopped off, right? So maybe that is a, a long-winded way of answering your question. But I think that it is it is not an easy one to answer because there's so many moving parts to it. And so, you know, clearly DeFi has become the largest use case on any blockchain at this point. Um, But what we're seeing is that the average person can no longer interact with DeFi. It's just it's just too expensive. Right. Um, And so, you know, 
what do you think that means in terms of, look, obviously ETH is going to roll out, you know, and is already rolling out layer two scaling solutions, right? By all these different independent teams, but are, you know, does that put ETH at a disadvantage or other blockchains going to be able to take some of the steam out of the ETH engine temporarily and potentially these blockchains decentralize in the, you know, in, in the, in the, you know, the meantime, while ETH is trying to attract this attention, like what does that what does that mean, and and how do we bring the average person, right? You know the, you know someone who's trading a hundred dollars or fifty dollars at a time, you know how long does it take to get them to ETH? Like how does that happen? So I think you know I, I actually realized I didn't answer your original question. Do I believe in a multi-chain future? I think I can answer it here as well with with what you've what you've asked here. So I think if you look back at history and see all of the you, some people call them Ethereum killers, um, all of these competitors to Ethereum that have come along and advertised kind of like cheap and fast transactions and they were more scalable than Ethereum. And it's not just Ethereum, it's Bitcoin as well. There's a lot of competitors in the early days that that, that kind of try to compete with Bitcoin yeah, the, on the, this. Those are all gone. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there are a lot of generation one Ethereum killers, you could call them, that are pretty much all dead now. I think I mentioned EOS, There's, there was NEO, uh, Qtum, there's a bunch of others out there that people may n- never even heard of, but these were big in 2017, like really big. Like people hyped these up as if they were going to be like, NEO was hyped up as the Ethereum of China. Like the hype for these things was insane. I mean, uh, there was there's Aeon and um, Icon. I mean, there were so many of these things out there. But essentially, they're all dead today because fast and cheap transactions is not the moat. It is not what people are like kind of, um, you know, attracted to uh, because it's commodity. It's going to become commoditized. Whereas with Ethereum, you mentioned that, that Ethereum is scaling. And I, I mentioned earlier that it's uh, that it's it's taking longer. It's, it's a slower rollout uh, and things like that. But I think that if you look at how usually how things get built out, it's that you don't build infrastructure before you have users, because then you're basically building something for no one. Like this is what's happened with a lot of these blockchains. They built scale for what? No one's using the chain. So why do you need that scale? Whereas with Ethereum, we built scale after we had the users and we proved out the product market fit of Ethereum and the use case of the of the network. And also when you don't have um uh, when you don't have like high high usage. And networks not clogged. There was no motivation to scale. So for Ethereum, uh, the layer two space has been kind of an open research and development space for many years. But the 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 kind of I guess motivation to deliver didn't really come until the last year or so when we had the explosion of DeFi use and the network started getting clogged and users couldn't kind of like interact with it. So now that we have a lot of these layer two solutions going on uh, online, they are online right now. I mean, uh, there's plenty of them out there. Users are u- are using these and getting the benefits of these cheap and fast transactions, but with the security of Ethereum instead of giving up, uh, you know, the, the Ethereum's kind of like fortified security to go to some other chain that doesn't give you that security. But the security and decentralization thing is just one part of it. I think the other part of it is that the Ethereum ecosystem has a massive moat. If you actually look at uh, the other chains that have gotten some traction, like BSC. Um, they're EVM compatible, which means that they are basically just a centralized version of Ethereum. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. You use MetaMask, you use the same kind of wallet, you use uh, BSC scan, which is a fork of Etherscan. Essentially, it's a a clone. It's exactly the same. Um, But you're, you're, sorry? It's the same company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Same company that 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 built it and everything. Like everything is the same, except you get those fast and cheap transactions, but you don't get the security. So what happens when when the layer two stuff rolls out and you get the security and decentralization guarantees of of Ethereum, um, but with the fast and cheap transactions? 
I, I think builders are going to uh, they're going to um, prefer to build on these solutions rather than something centralized and messy. And it's not just that it's centralized. BSC actually has a lot of issues with its infrastructure because what B- essentially what BSC did is they just took away a lot of the restrictions that Ethereum has in place. And 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 by doing that, they've actually caused instability on their blockchain, and they've caused a lot of things to happen. And no one can run a node; it's too expensive. And the only people who can are like the super nodes that run the network, and all owned by Binance, of course. Um, so from that perspective, why why not keep Ethereum's decentralization and security guarantees and build on layer two where we can have users sit? Because I do think the world is going to be multi-chain, but I think it's going to be a multi-layer two world where you're going to have different layer twos on Ethereum. They're all going to talk to each other. They're all going to talk to layer one. They're all going to talk to exchanges. We've already seen exchanges like OKX um, put in support for Arbitrum. Uh, so you could do de- uh, users can do deposits and withdrawals from Arbitrum, which is coming soon. Uh, uh, they've got the support for it, but like it's not publicly available just yet. So we, we're seeing all that already play out, and I think that if you see like the top developers in the Ethereum ecosystem, the top projects, none of them um, have deployed to something like BSC, or at least like most of them haven't. Like Uniswap, MakerDAO, Compound, they're not on BSC. They don't want to be on BSC. They want to be on an Ethereum layer two. They want to um, scale via Ethereum security and decentralization. And I actually truly believe that the, that the builders in this space have much more power than anyone else because the builders, the, the users follow the, the, the builders because the builders are the ones developing the apps that the users want to use and they're maintaining it and they're and, and, and kind of like the innovating in that area. So for me, and, and and I guess like going back to an earlier question, a big reason why I stick around in Ethereum is the builders because no other ecosystem has the, the, the builders that Ethereum has in terms of sheer number and in terms of brain power because the smartest people in this ecosystem do not want to work on some centralized stuff. Like they want to work on actually can we decentralize the world and can we scale it? Like those are the two fundamental things. Can we do, uh, do, do something that changes the world while keeping it decentralized while scaling it to meet the, 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 um, needs of end users with those cheap transactions and, and those fast transactions as well. So yeah, I guess like TLDR is like, I do believe in a multi-chain future, but I believe most of it will be in the layer two and Ethereum space rather than there being like a million different blockchains out there that have like, you know, all these, it's not going to be an even split across these things either. It's going to be like a power law distribution where there'll be a handful of winners and then there'll be smaller kind of ecosystems that pop off of that, that may fill fill some niches. But do, does the average person care about decentralization and security? Because, you know, if, if you look at, you know, you know, some of these assets, right, you know, you look at, you talk to the average person investing and, and sure, I get your point on AWS and, you know, why build a blockchain? But I think the average person has no idea. They just go on Robinhood and they see the name of an asset. They see like Ethereum Classic and they're like, oh, it's a cheaper ETH, right? Or, well, I mean, it's the OG ETH, but like still, like, you know, (laughs) they see, you know, they see, you know, whatever, Cardano or whatever asset, right? And they just YOLO into it, right? I I don't think that the average person, at least today, cares about that or understand the underlying blockchain, understand security, understands, you know, decentralization. I think they just go, I want to trade, you know, X and Y and Z. I'm speculating on this. The price is super cheap. If, you know, like I, if you, have you ever been on, on like TikTok, crypto TikTok? It is, it mm-hmm, is, a, it mm-hmm. is, it is just anybody listening, just go on TikTok, type in the word crypto and just watch a video. And like <laughs> the first thing that shows up is like, I just bought, you know, you know, I'm not, I don't even know what the names of these things are, right? Like, and it's one a thousandth of a penny 
And if I put a hundred dollars into it and it goes to $5, I'm a trillionaire, you know, and mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm. like, it's complete stupidity. So I, I, like, I don't think the average person yet cares about that. I'm, I'm curious as to how we get to a place where the average person does care or we so at this, least c- create that education. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a common thing that I, I, I see a lot of people saying that, that, that people don't care about decentralization. And I think it's important to maybe separate the apps and the usage of Ethereum uh, and kind of like the building on Ethereum from the speculation on just random assets on Robinhood or on like Binance or whatever, because the speculative side of it, these people are gambling at the end of the day. And and I have nothing wrong, like no problem with gambling. I, I you know, I, I partake myself and, you know, everyone likes to speculate, right? But, but I think these people and, and, and the gambling is fleeting. You, you, you've seen just over the last month how much people have left the ecosystem that were just here to speculate on these random tokens, like the dog tokens and the, you know, the, the, the Dogecoin forks. And there's a bunch of others out there. And for, if you look at it like that, these people ne- never used Ethereum. Like they, they, were, they were just on these centralized exchanges. And, th- and if they used Ethereum, it was literally just to buy this asset from Uniswap. But the thing is, they still used Ethereum, right? Which is the, the, the key here. So they used decentralization without even knowing that they were using it. They used Ethereum without even knowing they were using it. They, they might just think, oh, I went on Uniswap and did this. I'm like, oh, do you know Uniswap is built on Ethereum? And they're like, no, I don't care. Why do I care what, what it's built on? I got my dog token. It's fine. So when, when you think about it like that, I, it goes back to my point on the well, I mean, developers. the same thing with the internet, right? No one talks about HTTPS and yes. you know, TCP IP, so... Yes, and that's the goal, right? We shouldn't expect users to care that they're using Ethereum. Um, I would like to get to a world where Ethereum becomes synonymous with the internet, so people will be like, "Oh, you know, I'm I'm just going to go do this on Ethereum." But I don't think that's going to be the case. I think Ethereum, being a protocol, is going to be dominant. A protocol that you can build on is going to be dominated by its front end facing app. So people are going to be like, "Oh, just like the internet is today." It's like, "Oh, you know, are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook?" It's like, "Oh, you know, do you have a profile on this Web three thing, or you know, do you use Uniswap, or do you have a loan?" on make a DAO or whatever. So, whatever so with that it. said, will the majority of the value accrue to Ethereum or to the applications built on top of Ethereum, which is, you know, a question that's been proposed many a time. So curious as to your thoughts there. Yes, it has. And it's something called the fat protocol thesis where um, this was a thesis Joel for Manangro, a long yeah. Yes, yes. And it was from a while ago now where he stated that, or he, I guess he asked the questions like, does the value accrue to the token that backs the ecosystem that other things are built on? So does the value of Ethereum accrue to the ETH token instead of accruing to the application layer? The way I think about it is that it's both. Because we've seen it play out over the last year where DeFi went through its kind of like, uh, I guess, uh, bull market, and then ETH went through its bull market, and they both came down recently. Um, DeFi had its own mini bull and bear market during that time. But a lot of DeFi has actually bled against ETH. Uh, and, and if you look at a lot of the, the the assets, they're down massively against ETH. Even even some of the, I guess, uh, the blue chips that people kind of talk about. They're, it's they're so down. funny to me, by the way, that people call them blue chips. These things have been around for two years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's just like a meme to just try and up the value and just pump their bags essentially um but i, I like sushi I think, swap is a blue chip like sushi swap got rugged like a year ago yeah yeah it's, it hasn't been around for very long and yeah as you said like most of these stuff most of these things haven't been around for very long but kind of when you look at that and you look at the value accrual i think it just comes down to what people want to own long term 
like for me personally, I love a lot of the DeFi apps. I think that they hold that they have a lot of value, but I don't want to hold most of their tokens long term. I want to hold ETH long term, and this is because of things like staking, um, ETH uses trust as collateral, ETH uses a store of value, and of course EIP one five five nine, which basically makes it that every transaction on the network is burning ETH. So every, everything, it doesn't matter if if you're transacting with a DeFi app or doing something else, you have to burn ETH to do so because it's, it's part of the new mechanism being implemented. So from that point of view, you have basically this asset that backs the entire ecosystem. Without ETH, I don't think DeFi could work in, in any any big way, um, in a long-term sustainable way. And I don't think most people would want to play in it without something that, that they could use as trustless collateral and, and things like that. So I, I think that the, the answer is both. And, and it's still an open question because it seems like right now that ETH is uh, is accruing most of the value and a lot of the DeFi tokens are bleeding against ETH, but the pendulum is going to swing back eventually, I believe. Like, I, I do think that uh, the DeFi kind of like tokens will come into their own. I think that the investor base will shift because DeFi is basically like any old company out there where you measure it based on like a price to earnings or price to sales ratio, and you measure it based on the revenue that it's gen- generating from that and the fees and whatever. Um, so well, from one the- thing that was interesting to me, I was talking, uh, uh, Needham put out a research report, John Tadaro wrote it, who was at TradeBlock before, uh, on DeFi. And something that was shocking me is DeFi is only 5% of total crypto market cap today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's still very small. And, and I do think it's because, as I said, DeFi is, is basically evaluated based on a price to earning and price to sales ratio. Whereas um, if you see the kind of current investor base that we have, it's just now starting to be people that actually care about that in terms of like traditional investors and institutions and stuff. Whereas traditionally, uh, I, I think that the crypto ecosystem has been a meme-driven economy where really if you have the best memes and the best awareness because of those memes, you your your, your, your kind of like token price goes up uh, based on that. And we saw this play out like massively with, as I mentioned before, the dog tokens, all the, like there was Dogecoin and then there was like all these kind of like Shiba and Akita and things like that that, that went insane and, and it's just all meme investing we're seeing it play out in the stock market look at amc and gme it's just these memes i think people are underestimating how powerful a meme is because of the fact that we have such a a, a, a big way to distribute it now via the internet and i think that's leading to maybe a warp of people's kind of perception on investing now where they're like oh i could have just invested in dogecoin instead of these other things and it's well, all this is this is why we originally started as a sentiment data company because mm-hmm. it, it really is so 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 sentiment driven yeah exactly exactly and i think the the funny thing is like there's short term and then long term sentiment i think short term you can get those wild pumps in things like dogecoin and and the, and other things but then long term it's it, the value flows back to assets like btc and eth the actual assets that people want to hold long term yes they will fall in price if if it's not a bull market but they will fall less much less than these other things because people were trading these other things for the assets that they actually want to hold. So I think from that perspective, you're going to have, you're eventually going to have like DeFi blue chips, like actual blue chips, but it's going to take these apps actually being used by a wide set of people. Like, you know, I would say hundreds of millions of people. You you need these. You need the um, investor base to shift more to these traditional investors who care about price to sales, price to earnings, and it's going to take over the long term to 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 play out. It's not going to happen over the short term. Um, and you 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 know there was a funny experiment recently I should mention with the the Yearn project. So the Yearn project has a the YFI token. Now the YFI token has a very large um, uh, token price because it has a very low circulating supply. So its token price is about four. $40,000. Now, 
as probably most people know at this point, the newer investors love the cheap tokens. It doesn't matter about the market cap. If the if the unit price is cheap, they love it. This is why Dogecoin went up. This is why a lot of dog tokens went up because it feels better to hold a million of uh, a million tokens of something than one token. Um, so what ended up happening was that the the Yearn project put out a new token that was pegged to YFI called Woofy. So it was a dog token, but it also had a much much cheaper price. It was like sub one dollar or something like that. So it but it was still tied to the value of YFI. So everyone who was buying Woofy was technically buying YFI. So it was like an experiment to trick these people who. I guess like um, had that unit bias to buying the the more expensive so, token. So we've done a tremendous amount of empirical research for this uh-huh. uh, for a certain clients, not public. And over the last fifteen months, coins below uh, coins below five cents. All things aside, market cap, you know, everything aside, have outperformed coins above eighty cents by twelve hundred percent. Twelve hundred percent. Nothing else matters. Just yeah. the coin being cheap. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a problem and 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 something that the crypto space is going to have to, and not even just the crypto space, but the stock market just has has suffered through. I mean, this. I mean, there's, there's a tremendous amount of empirical research. The same thing exists in the stock market. If you mm-hmm. look at stock splits in the stock market, there's been a tremendous amount of research that the average stock, I believe, is outperformed by eight percent in the following year versus the rest of the market. Uh, you know, like stocks that have had a stock split have outperformed by eight uh, percent mm-hmm. just because the price is cheaper. Yep. And it's it's just that unit bias. And I, I I won't lie, like I I prefer to hold more of something than than less of it, even if I know that the market caps are wildly different and the su- supplies are wildly different. Um, but I think that we're gonna see more and more projects launch with like a massive circulating supply to keep that unit cost down because they know that if they don't, then no one's really gonna be interested in their asset. Um, you know, I think Bitcoin and ETH is an exception to the rule here over over the longer term, but I think most projects Unfortunately, I don't know about that. I feel like if Bitcoin was $30 as opposed to $37,000, you'd have a lot more buyers. Like I was in a cab in in Miami as, you know, everyone was, and mm-hmm. I was talking to my taxi driver. I saw by the way, every single taxi driver or Uber driver in Miami is is day trading on Robinhood while they're <laughs> driving you and almost crashing the Uber. Like uh-huh. I I talked to at least four people that almost got into an accident because their their cab driver was day trading like $5,000 of Dogecoin on Robinhood. Oh but anyways, God. I was talking to him and I was like, why are you buying these assets? And he's and the response is cuz if I cuz you know, I can buy more of them. I don't want to buy a Bitcoin because I can't buy a whole Bitcoin. And I had to explain market cap and like didn't get it. Like it didn't click. Mm-hmm. It took a while for that to click. Yeah, no, I, I think what I, well, I guess what I was was saying was that I think that for BTC and ETH, yes, it, it definitely plays a big part in that, but I think it's not like a death knell for them. I think they'll, oh, no, they'll I be agree. fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but but definitely agree with you that if if BTC and ETH had a cheaper price, they would have much more kind of like um, buy side flow, and they'd probably go up much more than they than they currently do. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just funny how like these um these things that that people may not even think of the psychology of this is what kind of drives everything, and that really is the market at the end of the day. It's all psychology. It's all based on human emotion, <laughs> sentiment, <laughs> sentiment exactly. So yeah, it's 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 been funny to watch that play out. But as I said, I think over time the space kind of like matures. You have a different investor base, and also. Uh, I mean, I think in parallel, the space is maturing, right? Because there is a tremendous amount of maturation, but there's also the retail nonsense. And I think that will just wash out. 
It, it will. And and the thing is, the, the, the more kind of like sophisticated investors will play this and take the money from that and put it into assets that they actually want to hold. That's the other thing that people miss is that it's not just the retail playing in this. I like, was the- I, I was talking to the biggest crypto fund. Uh, I'm not going to say who it was, but th- this mm-hmm. is like every... This is like the biggest crypto trade. You know who they are. They're like the biggest traders or whatever. They said they bought Dogecoin like on January 3rd, like $20 million worth, and they sold the night before SNL. Oh, no. Uh, 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 oh, God. Oh, wait, the night before SNL. I thought, I thought you said the night after. That was the that night was good. before. No, 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 yeah, no, no, yeah, no. Yeah. They sold it at like, they bought it at like a half a cent and sold it at mm-hmm. 60 cents and made like hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, I mean, they sold that. Maybe they went to cash first, but they're definitely going to go into BTC and ETH and things like that too, I, I would suspect um, at, at some point. Absolutely. And so let's go into layer two. We've been, you know, kind of dancing around the layer two discussion, but what do you think of, and I, I'd love for you to explain, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our listeners work at, you know, at, at hedge funds and banks and, and they're more on the finance side. So I'd love if you could explain like, what is a ZK rollup? Can you explain optimism to us, the difference, you know, and, and what do you think of the, these different solutions that are being built? Yeah. So I'll, I'll try to keep it uh, as high level as I can without getting too, too way into the technical details because it does get quite technical. Um, but essentially we can put Ethereum scaling into, I guess, like two buckets. Uh, so you have like these uh, layer two solutions, which are normally referred to as rollups. So there's zero knowledge rollups or ZK rollups and optimistic rollups. So they're two different um, technology, uh, two different approaches to, I guess, the, the same kind of um, technology here because they're both rollups. Now, the second set is something called like a side chain or like, um, uh, I guess, like a, a blockchain that plugs into Ethereum via a bridge. Um, but that's like, a, that's, Sidechain's not normally secured by Ethereum, so it's it's a different kind of scalability set there. So I, I will focus on the Layer 2 stuff for now because that's what everyone hears about. So with, with Layer 2, the, the main difference, um, well, I guess there's a, there's a bunch of differences between ZK rollups and optimistic rollups, um, but the main difference is essentially that there's this thing with, uh, with ZK rollups where uh, they basically, um, uh, I guess, I'm trying to put this in, in kind of like a, in, in kind of like a high level that people can understand here. Is that maybe maybe I'll start with the the drawback um, of optimistic rollups in that there's a seven day withdrawal period. Uh, so if you put your funds into an optimistic rollups, you have to wait seven days to withdraw them to layer one. Um, in the in the kind of normal case, there's ways around this, but in the normal case, there's a seven day wait. Now this is because optimistic roll-up security works um, optimistically. That's where the name comes from. Where the the, the reason there's a seven-day period is because you have seven days um, of kind of like, uh, I guess, a cha- something called a challenge period where if you suspect there was fraud that happened on these optimistic roll-ups, you have seven days to prove it. And you prove it through cryptographic proofs that you can post to the um, operator. And, and that's how you kind of like um, make sure the system is secure. So what, what essentially optimistic rollups does it that it assumes everything is running well until someone calls foul on it. Whereas ZK rollups will say, will, will not assume that. ZK rollups will basically um, say that, well, not everything's running. Uh, not, we don't we don't assume that everything's running well. We're going to check the security ev- like all the time. So that's why with ZK rollups, you don't have that, um, that issue. Now, the trade-offs in that is that... Uh, 
I guess like the current trade-offs and uh, longer term, it's different, but the current trade-offs is that with ZK roll-ups, they're lim- they're, they're, they've traditionally been limited to just asset transfers. So you could do like a decentralized exchange on there, like Uniswap or something, um, but you can't do fully generalized like EVM compatible apps. So you couldn't do like a MakerDAO or an Aave or something like that because you, you, you the, the functionality wasn't there. The smart contracting functionality wasn't there. Uh, whereas on optimistic roll-ups, you could. Uh, and that's that's the key difference. Now, if we're talking long term, the, the 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 kind of like hope, and it's kind of like up in the air, but the hope is that the zero knowledge uh, zk rollups will be able to do what optimistic rollups can do without the drawbacks. But without getting too technical again, there is a lot more to it than that uh, because. There's there's actually a few podcasts out there right now. One on one on Bankless that that had a bunch of these layer two teams on to discuss the trade offs and discuss the benefits and drawbacks of each of these solutions. Um, but uh, but th- that those are the main differences. And the way up with optimistic rollups, the way you get around that withdrawal delay is you could have like a, a market maker sit between layer one and layer two that takes on that risk. So say you want to um go to layer one with with your ETH. You would basically tr- go through this market maker that sits on, like, say, a, 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 a like a Uniswap, for example, or an AMM, um, and you go through that. You get your ETH, but the market maker gets your ETH from the optimistic rollup, but they get it seven days later. So essentially, what would happen is that they would take a fee for that service, and they take on the risk of something going wrong in that in that kind of rollup there. Uh, whereas with ZK rollup, it's much faster to withdraw. But as I said, there's the main trade-offs that you can't build those fully expressive applications that you uh, right now that you can on optimistic rollups. Th- those I would say are the major differences that users would care about. There's other differences like with optimistic rollups. I think it's easier to read the data on the chain and for kind of like tools to plug into that um, as opposed to ZK rollups. I think the ZK rollups are more expensive than optimistic rollups because they have to check all the time instead of um, assuming that everything's going well. They have to check that everything's going well all the time. So, uh, but yeah, as I said, there are there are some other podcasts out there. Um, one one from Bankless that really uh, kind of goes deeper into this, but it is a complex thing. This technology is not um, not not simple when you when you dive into it. But uh, maybe I should mention like exactly how these work. Like, how does roll up scale Ethereum? I, I think that's the core of it. Now, so essentially, what they do is there's two parts to transactions on Ethereum. There's the data part, and then there's like the computation part. Now, the computation is the expensive part because you have like to, to basically do computations on the Ethereum network, you do them as measured in gas costs. And the more expensive the computation, the more gas that it uses, the more expensive it is for the end user because the fees are, are higher. So you can basically think of it like that. Like you can think of it like an, if anyone's ever used AWS, you have to pay for the compute that you're using, right? You have to pay if you use more compute than someone else, you're paying more than someone else. It's the same for Ethereum. Now, what rollups do is that they basically take the computation off chain. So it's not actually being done on Ethereum. It's being done on, uh, you know, whoever, whoever wants to run a node for the, the layer two rollup can do it and they do it on their own computer. And what ends up happening is that they do the computation, then they post a zero knowledge proof or, or, or a kind of like a proof to the Ethereum blockchain saying that they ran that computation so essentially the data is still posted to ethereum layer one and with that data contains all the information that you need to reconstruct that that um computation that happened off chain so if you want to check that the computation happened as the proof says it happened you just rerun the proof on your own local machine right to to check that so by doing that we basically take the expensive part of an ethereum transaction and we do that off chain instead of doing it on chain and incurring all those gas fees 
And what this enables is that you can wrap thousands of transactions on a layer two into just one transaction on Ethereum because the only transact and the only thing you're posting to Ethereum is that proof that of, of those transactions. So it's it's only one transaction to Ethereum to prove the that that all of these thousands were done correctly. Um, and as I said, with that one transaction on Ethereum, that data, you can reconstruct it yourself on off chain. So that is the key break breakthrough here, and that is what what gives us that scalability. So, um, and and this is why uh, people may have heard like um, you know ETH two with sharding, and they're like, okay, well, how does sharding improve this? Well, sharding is a layer one kind of scalability technology. So you can think of sharding as essentially um, uh, increasing the throughput of Ethereum by sixty four x because there's going to be sixty four shards. So sixty four different blockchains essentially. Um, if you want to think of it like like conceptually like that, that all talk and are secured by Ethereum. And that would mean that we get 64x more scalability for layer two, because layer two is still limited by layer one's um, scalability, because you would imagine that, the, that so they're not mutually exclusive. No, no, exactly. So, you, and you can get like much more scalability with on layer two with sharding. So, um, hopefully, and you know that's a clear, a clear kind of explanation about how the rollup technologies work fundamentally. In that they take the computation, the expensive part, they do it off chain, and then they post a proof that they did it off chain to the Ethereum layer one to basically secure themselves of Ethereum, and anyone can reconstruct the computation using that proof. And so just really quickly, not trying to sidetrack, what what about Bitcoin layer two, you know, like Bitcoin, DeFi, like sovereign? What are your thoughts there? So I, from from what I understand of Bitcoin's layer two, so th there's there's two, I guess, like there's a Lightning Network. Oh, no, there's more than two, but like two of the, the most well-known ones are the Lightning Network, which is not a roll-up technology. It is what's called state channels. So state channels work differently to, to roll-ups. Um, I'm not an expert on state channels, but they've been around for a while. We have them on Ethereum as well. But... Fundamentally, I think the Lightning Network is limited by Bitcoin's layer one um, uh, programmability, of which it doesn't really exist. You can't do anything on Bitcoin's layer one except I think the two core things you can do is send Bitcoin and multisig. That's really it with Bitcoin's programmability. Where and maybe you can do some hash hashing things and hash locked contracts or whatever, but that's all falling into multisig stuff. Um, and the second thing, as uh, you mentioned, Sovereign, which is built on the rootstock, which is basically a side chain to Bitcoin that pegs itself into Bitcoin. Um, to share its security, from what I understand. I don't know enough about it to have an educated opinion on it, but it is very different to Ethereum because Bitcoin's layer one, as I said, is not expressive. It is not programmable. You can't do things on it. You couldn't build rollups on Bitcoin because you can't post the proof of the rollup to Bitcoin's layer one. It won't let you do that because it's just not built that way because it doesn't have a virtual machine um, is, is the crux of it. Whereas with Ethereum, you can. So and 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 the, and the drawback of that is that Bitcoin's layer two inherits all of the limitations of Bitcoin's layer one, whereas Ethereum's layer two doesn't have any limitations because um, the only reason why the scalability is limited on Ethereum's layer one, or at least the major reason, is because we don't want to give up the decentralization and security. Ethereum's layer one could scale today if we wanted to just throw out all the decentralization. We would just increase the block size on Ethereum. Um, you know, we would just basically take away all the restrictions. We would go off proof of work. We would go to um, you're basically just having super nodes. We just basically become BSC, and then you know that's that that that's kind of like the thing there. So I think. Bitcoin's DeFi ecosystem is a funny one for me, both on a technical and social layer. I think that Bitcoin should just stick to what it's good at, um, and that's being like non-sovereign money instead of uh, in, instead of being like um, uh, trying to be Ethereum because it can't. It fundamentally can't because the 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 system won't allow it to be that. So, will Ethereum flip in Bitcoin? 
and if so, how long will it take and what implications will it have on the rest of the market? And obviously it's, the could is is an easy question, but the will is my question. I, I, I think this is like a, a funny question because the, it depends when you ask it. You can like if you asked this in 2019, like everyone would have told you no because the because ETH the ETH Bitcoin ratio was very low. It was uh it was extremely low and 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 it had fallen uh, from its highs. If you ask people now, they'll say, well, yes, yes, it's going to happen. I just don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Um, I believe it will happen. I believe it's going to take longer than people think it will. Um, and I, I do think that it's funny because like until recently, Bitcoin didn't really have anything going for it over the last kind of couple months. Like the, the catalysts were gone. Like the, the companies weren't buying BTC anymore. Like the price had come down. And then just a couple of days ago, which is yesterday, we had El Salvador create, uh, make Bitcoin legal tender. So now Bitcoin has like all the spotlight again, right? And the ETH Bitcoin ratio is falling. But I do think over the long term, ETH's value as an asset um, eclipses Bitcoin based on fundamental value and all the utility that I went through before, whether that's being used in DeFi or staking or one five five nine, all that sort of stuff. So it's going to take. I mean, it's uh, kind of like it's kind of like you know the idea that you know if it happens, right? Gold originally was a lot more valuable than the dollar, uh, and over time, the dollar accrued more value because it could just do more than gold could do. Yeah, there's there's that analogy, and there's also the fact that I think that. You can compare what Ethereum is to like something like the internet, and but the internet doesn't have its own native asset, right? So how do you calculate the value of the internet? Well, it would be worth hundreds of trillions of dollars, don't you think? Like the actual internet protocol, because everyone worldwide uses it. It's it's used every single day in a large way. It's it's there. The internet is never going away. It's it's its use is going to grow exponentially from here still. Um, so when you look at that. If you had to put a price on the internet, I would say hundreds of trillions of dollars. So if Ethereum is going to become not only the new financial system, but also the new internet because of the Web3 stuff that we're trying to build as well, then it goes to reason that ETH as an asset, if if it's if it's designed correctly, which I think it is, will accrue a lot of that value. So that's why I believe, yeah, Bitcoin will, will still have its place as whatever people want it to be, digital gold, store of value. But it is in no way, in my mind, able to accrue the value that ETH will be able to accrue over the longer term. And so, you know, you, you mentioned EIP-1559, uh, you know, coming up in about a month. And so do you think it is definitively going to go ahead? It is going to happen uh, and, you know, what are some possibilities as to, you know, why, you know, why it, it, it could not happen or other proposals would not be passed? It will 100% happen. I have no doubt in my mind. It is already... So the way the Ethereum governance process works is that it has to go through, obviously, like social consensus and then a bunch of other things. It has to go through testing, development, research. And AIP-1559 took over two years to get to the state or where it was like accepted. I think it was it was exactly two... Not exactly, but like almost two years since it was accepted into an upgrade. Now, that upgrade, as you said, is going live next month. Um, it is still being uh, uh, kind of just like um, it's not being developed or anything. All the clients, I'm pretty sure all the clients have it implemented. They're just doing test nets now, making sure it runs all smoothly. They already did test nets, but this is like, you know, test nets before the main net, right? You want to get everything right before you put it on main net. So I would say that um, there's there's 0% chance it doesn't go in. 
Um, I would say that there might be, you know, maybe there's a couple of weeks delay or something. Maybe there's a bug found. I'm, I'm not sure that anything can happen there, but it, it is going in for sure. And the benefits that it brings with it isn't just the fee burning. It brings with it user experience benefits as well. For those who have used Ethereum, you may um, have experienced things where you have to speed up your transaction because your transaction gets stuck because you didn't pay a gas fee that was um, that was fast enough or you didn't pay a gas fee that would get you into an Ethereum block um, or it was too cheap or whatever. Traditionally, you have to speed up the transaction, which can be a pain. Whereas with EIP one five five nine, what it does is it smoothens out the transaction um, mempool, which essentially means that you won't have to do that ninety nine percent of the time. You'll just do a transaction, you'll pay the fee, and then you'll get into the next Ethereum block, which is going to make the user experience like infinitely better uh, because of that. And this doesn't just apply to users; it applies to smart contracts because now smart contracts that need to get a transaction in can do so with predictability as well, which I think is really powerful. They don't have to basically overpay and um, you know guess the transaction fee and, and hope they're not like front run and, and hope that the, the transaction fee goes up a lot. Um, they can essentially um, have certainty with that as well. And the the the, um, the the fee burning to me is just a bonus. I think the real kind of uh, upgrades are in the usability aspect. So uh, yeah, but yeah, as I said, 100% chance it's going in. And so speaking of front running, you know, will uh, EIP 1559 help with the, you know, the minor extractable value, the MEV problem? Um, you know, that's been talked about a few times. Not really. Um, there's there's debate about this um, with some of the top researchers right now, or whether ha- will, will it have a material impact? I don't think so. It wasn't designed like that. I think it can have an impact in that it makes it so that the miners uh, can't just go around the Ethereum mempool and accept like um, other transactions through something, uh, sorry, other um, fee tokens through something like Flashbots for people who have heard about Flashbots before, where essentially what what people can do is that they can go to miners and say, hey, put my transaction into a block, you know, um, and here's some money for, do, for, for doing that. And it's like a bribe, so to speak. Whereas they can still do that, but with ERP-1559, because um, ETH ha- is burnt, the miners still have to pay ETH to the network to do this. So they can't just put in like a zero fee transaction into the network and take the fee like off network. They have to actually do it on network. So that's that's a benefit and that may make it a little bit better. But MEV as a concept is yeah, it's not going to be solved by 1559. And it is at this point in time, we still don't know what the solution is, as in like to fix it. Well, I mean, we know what the solution is. Uh, ideally, we would just like randomly order transactions, but um, it's still an open research and development thing. Uh, and one five five nine may may help a little bit, but not not really. And so this is the fundamental value podcast, after all. And I think we've actually hit on this a lot, um, you know, in in different ways. But I guess broadly, you know, how do you define fundamentals for digital assets? And you know, I, I know we spoke about ETH's fundamentals. So let's kind of go into more as to. How how do fundamentals differ by asset? Mm-hmm. So I think um, the it depends on like what the asset is, what it's trying to be, and what its network is doing. I think if we look at the the top two right now, the Bitcoin network doesn't um, drive value to BTC, right? Because the Bitcoin network does nothing to drive value to BTC. I think BTC's value comes from, as I said, like its belief, uh, uh, people's belief that it's a it's a store of value, um, its deflationary properties. Uh, you know, it's it's cap supply, it's memes, it's um, it's. I it's like kind of that like, you say deflationary because it is deflationary. People like ignore the fact that it's completely deflationary because people lose their private keys all the time. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's that, but like, I, I guess, like, God, I'm gonna, maybe I'll get in trouble for saying that, but people debate about like what what deflationary actually means a lot because at the moment, Bitcoin is inflationary because it's still issuing um, blocks. But uh, yeah, I mean, as you said, like, lost keys and maybe people keep it in cold storage forever as well. But you know, I think Bitcoin is valued or BTC as an asset is valued in a very different way to something like Ethereum. As I mentioned, Ethereum's value comes from, sorry, ETH's value comes from the network utility, a lot of its value. Uh, but if we're looking at other assets, as I mentioned, DeFi assets are valued based on their price to sales or price to earnings ratio. So how many fees are they generating based on protocol usage? So um, for example, something like SushiSwap will uh, will accrue fees via trading volume. So the more trading volumes there are, the more fees that are paid, the more fees go into the SushiSwap treasury and the more fees get paid out to sushi stakers. So if you're staking your sushi tokens, you get these kind of like fees. So there's a direct fee capture there. But then there's other blockchains. And this is something maybe that goes back to what, what you were saying about Ethereum competitors. So when you think about it, Let's let's take Solana as an example here. Why would the sole token over the long term accrue value? Like what 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 are the fundamental value drivers there? If transactions are cheap, then it's not accruing value from its use as a as a fee token, right? If it, if if the, the network uh, if, if Sol isn't like accruing monetary properties because of its use as like a fee token or its use as as kind of like um uh, as fuel for the network, then um do people think that Sol is a store of value? I don't see how that comes to to be. Are people staking their Sol? Yes, but but um, Solana staking is different to Ethereum staking, where Solana staking is, as I said, a super node. So it's, it's basically um, delegated proof of stake. Where I you think basically you need to have, have like 20,000 soul or something. Yeah, yeah. And, and essentially, the top stakers are just like staking companies and early investors who bought in like the private rounds or whatever. So from that perspective, not, not everyone can stake. And yes, the, the barrier to entry on Ethereum is, is still quite high. It's like 32 ETH, which is not cheap. Um, but back in the day, it was cheap. And a lot of people um, stacked back in the day as well. And eventually, we're going to have decentralized staking services. But but generally, like maybe maybe going a little bit off topic there, but generally, I just think that you have to look at the, the fundamental value drivers. And ETH as an asset has a lot of them because of its, its utility. Um, and I, I think it, it all goes back to, if we're talking about the core fundamental value of ETH as an asset, Really, you can boil it down to its use as a as a fee token, right? Its use, its demand for for as a fee token, its demand as a staking token, and its demand to be used as trustless collateral. Whereas I'm not seeing that play out in any of the other ecosystems right so, now. So it sounds like from from your point viewpoint, it's the combination of those things, right? Because there are like Tezos, it's not that expensive to stake on Tezos, for example, right? I think it's like $20,000 or something like that in terms of the amount of Tezos that you need. And obviously, there's delegated staking as well. But it's the combination of these things that that I, I guess is the, 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 the what will drive the value in the long run. Yeah, it's definitely the combination. And, it, and I think the social layer plays a big part here in, as I said, like, it depends on what assets people want to hold. Like, do people want to hold, um, you know, Tezos long-term? Do they want to hold DOT long-term? And okay, and if they do, what is the reason for that? Like, and, and the reason normally has to boil down to their kind of like a conviction on the network accruing activity. Because without the network accruing activity, the asset itself doesn't accrue any value because the asset is directly tied to the network. So your bet on ETH is essentially your bet on Ethereum. You're, you're betting that the Ethereum network is going to continue to grow, continue to see activity. You're betting that that activity is going to be things like DeFi that drive direct value to ETH. You're, and you're betting that the fees are going to be um, are going to continue to be high on layer one and that Ethereum will scale by, via layer two and that those fees will accrue to miners today, stakers, you know, when that when that goes live later, later on in the merge. So... For, and and I think this is this is probably something that separates Bitcoin from from the from uh, Ethereum 
uh, fundamentally is that, as I said, the Bitcoin network, in my mind, doesn't drive value to BTC. BTC's value comes from a bunch of other things, whereas ETH's value comes from, I think, the same thing that BTC's value comes from, but also its utility within the network. But it's definitely utility first. It's not belief first. And so, you know, offline we spoke, I think a lot of people know that you're very into DeFi and you're into you're into farming. And so, you know, do you think that ETH DeFi is currently over undervalued? And, you know, how do you go about assessing that? So there are some protocols I would consider to be undervalued at this point in time, because you can value these protocols like traditional tech stocks, I believe. And, you know, tech stocks normally have a higher price to sales ratio than um, kind of non-tech stocks because it's pricing in their growth, essentially. They're like, okay, well, we think this is going to grow like uh, by X amount over X amount of years, whatever, and we're going to price it like that. So I think in, in DeFi, you have something like Yearn right now, which has a price to sales ratio, I think of 12, um, which is very low for a high growth tech stock. And and these things are not high growth. They're hyper high growth. Like if you look at the growth that DeFi has has had over the last year, I mean, Uniswap, uh, not Uniswap, just decentralized exchanges one year ago were only doing a uh, billion dollars a month. Now they're doing $170 billion a month. And this is on layer one. This is not on layer two yet. We haven't even unlocked layer two. So when you look at um, all of DeFi and you look at the the I guess you can call them blue chips, whatever you want to call them, the, the top protocol, so to speak. They haven't even grown beyond their the DeFi ecosystem yet, beyond the insular ecosystem. If you truly believe that this stuff is going to be the, the new financial system, we're actually going to build these tools and they're going to touch like billions of people's lives and, and the protocols existing today are going to be the winners, then you have to price them as if they're going to win like that. Um, and you have to price them based on that over the long term. And that's where, where those kind of like, price to sales ratios come in and that's what you can kind of value these things on so i would say that a lot of DeFi today is is up in the air because a lot of these projects will fail but the actual like top projects such as like make a dow and yearn and uniswap maybe not uniswap uniswap is pretty highly how these, valued how do they even build a moat though you know you talked about things failing how does how does you know one of these projects build a moat well, I, I think things fail for multiple reasons. It's not just um, sure, uh, like sure, sure. it's not it's not just like maybe they lose to competitors. It's sometimes it's just a bad product. Sometimes people just don't want to use it. It just has no product market fit. Um, sometimes it is you know they have very stiff competition and they can't disrupt that competition or they get acquired. People may not know this, but there's actually kind of like you know I wouldn't call them acquisitions, but they are kind of like acquisitions with the aim of killing off the competition. If you saw what happened with Yearn Finance or the Yearn ecosystem, they actually acquired or merged with another yield aggregator called Pickle Finance back in uh, late, I think, 2020. Um, and Pickle Finance's TVL is all part of Yearn now. So they basically just absorbed them. But the Pickle token still exists, but that token is not going to accrue any value over the long term because the value is flowing to the YFI token now because it's part of the Yearn ecosystem. So that's just one example and you know there's there's tons of examples out there of like why business like it's, it's just like any business why they why they fail so to me the the moat really is within DeFi because everything's open source and you know, people might wonder okay can't it just be forked or whatever but the moat is the uh the, the, there's there's a few things i think the big thing is integrations like how integrated is this app with the rest of the DeFi ecosystem um that and, and 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 this is a big point because you think about the money markets for example Compound and Aave aren't just going to list your forked token right on the, on their money market. They go through a very lengthy governance process based on risk parameters to list these tokens on their money market. So 
Um, and, and, and for those who have their tokens already listed, they have a moat there. They have a, a money market moat, so to speak. Um, and with, with something like Maker, the integrations are vast. Like DAI as a stablecoin has become a staple for DeFi. So for you to bootstrap another stablecoin, like think about how many stablecoins there are. There's like 20 or 30 right now. How many are actually winning? It's like four or something. How many decentralized ones are winning? There's one. <laughs> it's just DAI. So when you think about that, the, the moat is integrations. Uh, I think community is, is, is the moat as well. Like uh, the, the builders and the community around a project really propel it forward. Uh, because at the end of the day, you can look at what happened with SushiSwap and Uniswap. I think that SushiSwap was going to die if not for its community because it didn't have any lasting power. Like the TVL fleet was fleeting because once the liquidity mining kind of uh, the lucrative mining incentives ran out, people just withdrew the liquidity and went back to Uniswap or went somewhere else. So there, there are a lot of different kind of like moats that 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 exist, but they they may not be moats in like the. In the in like the traditional sense, I, I believe. But Ooh, what about what about what Uniswap did with their new business source license? Is what they called it, right? Where they you know effectively put some copyright claims mm-hmm. on what they've done for for two years. Does that go against decentralization, and does that go against kind of the open source nature of crypto? So yeah, I mean this is this is a funny debate as well. That this is another way to like I guess um, fend off competitors by putting like a two year kind of uh, license on that. Um, I think that. I don't blame them for doing this because they took a long time to get to uni v3. So for someone to just come along and kind of like st- not steal the code, but just like kind of fork the project and like fork all the work that these people put into it is definitely um, not in the spirit of open source. So there's like the literal definition and there's a the spirit. I think the spirit of open source is that you use this to enhance your product. You don't just steal it. You don't just copy it and, and take it and, and claim it as your own. And you don't just monetize it as your own. And open source is a vast um, kind of like a licensing scheme. There's different licenses that fall into this. You can have like open source where everyone can read the code, but you can't actually use it for your own purposes. That's what Uniswap v3 is right now. Um, and there's a bunch of others out there too. So I think the spirit of open source has always been use it to enhance your product. Don't use it to kill us, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> And so, you know, kind of back to, to DeFi, uh, you know, just two final questions. And I, I really appreciate all your time. I, I learned a tremendous amount and I'm sure the audience did as well. So, uh, you know, in, in terms of DeFi, what are you farming uh, right now? And what is the shittiest farm that you've been involved with over the last couple of years? Yeah, so there was, I guess, like what I'm farming right now, um, I have a lot of my, actually, I don't know if you'd call ETH staking a yield farm, but I do have a lot of my ETH in staking right now. That's paying about 7%. I, I, I can't access that yet. You won't be able to access that until the merge goes through, which is probably the end of the year, uh, early next year. But I'm fine with that because for me, I have like a perma ETH stack that I never want to sell, um, which is pr- pretty much all of my ETH, if I'm being honest these days. Uh, and I'm just stacking more through staking. But I've also got a, a few other farms. I, 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 I closed some of them down recently because the stablecoin yields dropped. So I was farming um, some stablecoin yield farms where I was using my ETH as collateral to borrow stablecoins to go do some farming with it. But those collapsed because the market came down. And also there's a couple of, I guess you can call them pool twos or incentivized Uniswap pools where I'm providing liquidity and farming tokens that way as well. One of them being the ALCX ETH pair which is the uh, ALCX is Alchemix's um, native token, things like that. So that's one that I've been farming for a while. But uh, generally, yeah, I mean, any tokens that I have that that can be put into like governance and earn a yield is, is what I'm doing as well. But I don't hold that many tokens. I'm, I'm mostly kind of like ETH with with a few kind of like higher kind of um, uh, risk, risk plays in the DeFi ecosystem. 
Um, and as I mentioned at the start, I do a lot of seed investments too, which are obviously locked invested. No, no. <laughs> when is the last time you owned Bitcoin? Um, the last time I owned Bitcoin while knowing it, about it, because I actually owned some that I forgot about that was in some random wallet that I that I sold recently. But the last time that I knowingly owned Bitcoin was 2017. Yeah, yeah. And so my last question. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Just, I, I forgot to oh, answer yeah. the shittiest. Sorry, the oh, shittiest. Yes, this that is I the in. most important question. I love usually I ask people what the shittiest coin they've traded was, but <laughs> I'm asking the shittiest coin you farmed or it could be either one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, no. The, the shittiest farm, I think, was like something called pasta finance during <laughs> DeFi summer um, or spaghetti finance. It was literally a fork of a fork of a fork of a fork. It was so bad. Um, I'm pretty sure I lost money on it. It was just absolutely terrible. Um, and yeah, it went nowhere. <laughs> I've I've been in so many completely not. If you ever just go on EtherScan, or if you're feeling like you know just being a complete degenerate, go on BSC Scan, mm-hmm. and you can go to the yield farm list, and you can see like some of the latest yield farms that popped up, and the names are just absolutely hysterical. And I like there was Kebab Finance, and there was Chicken <laughs> Kebab Finance. Yeah. Just- <laughs> yeah, there was so many of these food token forks. Um, you know, over over Ethereum DeFi summer, and then they found their way to BSC uh, over the like last few months as well, which was I'm, just I'm funny. Trying- there was one called Thugs Finance. It was pretty. You like got you like farmed pimps and hoes. It was, <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. It was so entertaining. So yeah, that's that's uh, ridiculous. That's great. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like it's your point on gambling, right? Like, regardless of whether or not BSC is centralized, you know, I haven't. I I've taken basically all my money off of BSC, you know, a while mm-hmm. ago. But like, it is a. It was a lot of fun to get involved with these farms that had like, you know, if you got in first, you got 2 million percent APR and you were just basically trying to get out before you got rug pulled in the first 10 minutes or, <laughs> or the thing crashed to zero. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really just a casino. And if you treat it like that, then yeah, you can have a bit of fun, I guess. And so my last question is if not ETH, what other blockchain? Nothing right now. Um, I've, Come on, you got to give us a better, you got to give us a little bit better of an answer. What is the closest thing to ETH? <sighs> If you inter- had to choose, it, we know you're ETH. We know you're not buying anything else. No, no. But, I, you had- <laughs> I, I, but the thing is, I've been asked this question lots of times before, and I just, I've been through it in my head so many times. And I, I, I just, it, it's hard because like, I just don't see anything that's, that's even close to ETH. But if I had to, if I had a gun to my head, if I gun really to head, had right to. Right now, it's, it's on your head. Gun to my head, really had to. I would probably say, and maybe this is like not the most popular answer, but I would probably say the Cosmos ecosystem because I think that they're the most value and mission aligned um, uh, in terms of like what I look for in these systems um, in terms of like similarities to Ethereum. I hope everybody on Twitter picks this up and just starts <laughs> tagging you in Cosmos stuff. Uh, well, I, 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 yeah, I, I think so. I think like anytime like I go off script like that, people are like, oh, like he's, he's bullish on, on Adam. I'm like, I don't hold Adam, just disclaimer <laughs> there. I'm not bullish on Adam. But if I had to choose- I'm actually very interested in learning where we have, a, we just released a research paper on Solana, somebody on my team did. And we're, the, next, the next ecosystem we're going into is Cosmos. So I'm interested in learning a lot more as well. Yeah, I, I think Cosmos is just interesting from like their tech is really great from what I've seen and their their ethos and what they're building. They're building for the right reasons. But I think the Atom token just doesn't have very much value. Well, there's properties. no I don't, I don't know anybody building on Cosmos. Well, yeah, but the thing is, Cosmos is like a, uh, an interoperability multi-chain ecosystem where you can actually build using the Cosmos tech without technically building on Cosmos um, because Cosmos is like the bridge ecosystem. Got it. Um, 
so like something like Thorchain is built using Cosmosis technology, Tendermint. Um, but I think Binance Chain, not Binance Smart Chain, but their first iteration was built on Tendermint. So there are actually things built on it, but it is not like built on Cosmos technically unless you bridge in and then the Atom token, like no one knows how it's going to accrue value. So there's all of that kind of that plays into it. So I think when you when you look at that, um, I just look at the tech and the builders and like the ethos behind it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was an amazing episode. Uh, you know, I'd love to have you on again in the future. Last question is just, can you just tell everyone where they can follow you online? Yeah, easiest is just on Twitter. So my handle is sassel0x, S-A-S-S-A-L-0-X, and you can find links to everything that I'm doing in my bio on there. Awesome. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me on.